Thank you, worship team. So our passage we're looking at this morning, we have two passages, but uh, they're both in 1 John, uh, which starts on page 1021, if you're using the Blue Bibles. I'm going to read 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, and then 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. So beginning of 1 John chapter 2, and then a bit of 1 John chapter 3. So let's go ahead and stand as you're finding that for the reading of God's word. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. John writes, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now flip to 1 John 3, verses 4 through 10. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. It's the word of the Lord. Be seated and pray with me. Dear God, we lift up this time to you now as we look at these difficult passages. Um, They're difficult not because they're unclear. uh, On the contrast, they're very painfully clear. But God, they're, they're difficult because they... Uh, point to things in our hearts that are maybe painful to contemplate, things that can make us feel uh, frustration or fear or despair. And so uh, we just pray for this time that you would help us see the goodness of your righteousness in a way that we come to love it. It's like we love your grace. I pray also that we would see the relationship between righteousness and grace, that these things aren't enemies or opposed to one another, but they are things that walk together and build together. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're an NBA fan, uh, you were kind of keeping up with the draft this week, you probably saw that the first man drafted was 19-year-old Victor Wimbanyama. I hope I got that name right. I really tried. I read it a lot. Um, But he's been playing in France to this point. 
This is a 19-year-old young man drafted by the San Antonio Spurs, and I'm sure if he hasn't already, he's going to receive a very nice contract to play professional basketball uh, in the NBA. He's received a privilege that thousands, if not millions of people around the entire world dream of, getting to be paid very well to play professional ball in the NBA. Now, for him to live into that privilege, though, is going to involve changing how he lives. He's been playing basketball to this point, so he's not you know, like someone who's been drafted out of nowhere. So he's been playing the game, but he's going to have a new home, for one. So he's going to relocate where he lives his life. And he's obviously talented, but he's going to come under the coaching of the San Antonio Spurs so that he can be shaped into the basketball player that they have now called him to be. So the rhythms of his life, the practices and the habits of his life are going to change to live into the magnitude of the incredible calling, the incredible new life that he's been offered. And so you could imagine the absurdity if uh, he gets this offer and he says, man, this privilege seems great. I love it. I'm super excited for this. I don't want to change anything about how I live. I like where I live. I'm staying here. I'm not moving. I like the way I'm living. I'm not changing a single thing thank you, but let's see if we can work this out where I can be on this team and get all these privileges without anything about my life being different. That would be absurd. That'd be throwing away this incredible blessing that this guy has been offered. And that's an an imperfect analogy for a question that John is addressing in our passage today. Because John is writing to these Christian churches who have received this incredible privilege of being uh, not, you know, welcomed into an NBA team with a good contract, but being brought into the family of God itself, being brought into fellowship with the creator of the universe who is absolutely good, absolutely perfect. He's become their heavenly father, and he's offered them his entire inheritance, the whole new creation remade one day with in perfection to enjoy forever with him. That's all happened because they've come into the grace of Christ now. They're in Christ. It's not because of their own merits, kind of like we've talked about already. But what's happened is this group of teachers has separated themselves from the apostles. They have left uh, the visible church as it has been, and they sort of set themselves up as rival teachers about Jesus. So kind of what we talked about last week, they brought kind of alternative things about who Jesus is. They're denying his divinity and his humanity. They're denying his nature. And from what we see in this letter, we don't know exactly what they're doing, but they're also denying the way of life that Jesus taught John and that John and the apostles went on and taught the Christians as well. We don't know if they're saying, hey, if you're in Christ, you can live however you want. It doesn't matter at all. Or if they're just saying like, hey, you can keep up sort of the Greco-Roman pattern of life that you've been living, which is an incredibly self-indulgent, selfish, and sexually promiscuous culture specifically. They're saying, you just keep doing all that stuff. This Christian sin thing, this righteousness thing, that doesn't matter. If you're in Christ, it doesn't matter how you live. And these churches, as far as we can tell, they haven't fully bought into this idea yet. John isn't rebuking them. There are New Testament letters where they have to, you know, rebuke the churches for what they're doing. But they seem to be wavering or at least asking that question of, if I'm in Christ, does it really matter how I live? Does it really have to change what I do or how I behave? 
If I join a professional NBA team, do I really have to act like one of the team members? And John is writing to say, yes. This isn't a matter of indifference where you kind of do whatever you want. It's not a matter of just, yeah, keep on doing what you were doing before. Believe these things about Jesus and you're good. John says there is a way of life that comes with accepting the gospel of Christ, that comes with belonging to Jesus, that grows out of our relationship with him. And that way of life is every bit as important to belonging to Jesus as the things that we believe about him. And so John responds to these questions uh, kind of in three specific ways that we're going to look at today. He gives a warning. He mentions, commends a walk. And then he talks about a way back for people who have lost that walk. A warning, a walk, and a way back. And so let's look first at John's warning. Specifically, he warns them against downplaying sin. He gives a warning against downplaying sin let's start in first john chapter 3 verse 4 and read verses 4 through 6 he writes everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness sin is lawlessness you know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin no one who abides in him keeps on sinning no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or knows him so John is writing against these false teachers who, again, we don't know exactly what they were saying, but he gives some quotes from them in other parts of his letter. And one of those quotes is, you know, if we say that we have no sin, so that whatever we do, it doesn't count as sin. Or if we say we have not sinned, uh, that's what some of them seem to have said, like, I've never sinned. You know, that's never been a part of my life for whatever reason, if I believe the right things. Um, but they're saying that these actions that we're doing, uh, they don't count. They don't count as sin. It's a bit like if I said to my wife, hey, we're married, and I love you, and I love our covenant commitment, but I also want to flirt with other women and look at pornography. But I still love you, and we're still married. It's all cool, right, for me to do these two things together. She would be very much in the right to say, no, those two lives don't go together. The covenant commitment of marriage and those things, they don't belong. They're opposite of one another, and they can't be reconciled to one another. That's what John says, is there is something about the relationship we have with Christ that's like the faithfulness and commitment of a marriage. It has has levels or uh, a nature of faithfulness and commitment, and then living outside of that is not living in that relationship. And so that's what John is warning against in these verses, especially in verse 5. You read it again. He says, he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So John says Jesus' mission was to destroy sin. He came to eradicate this power. This is hostile territory that has taken over parts of the world. He's liberating it back. And so he says, how could we who become part of that liberation Say like, yeah, go right back to it. It's totally fine. No big deal. He says, we can't do that. That's not how we're supposed to live. It was an enemy that's enslaving and killing his people, not a neutral thing that's a matter of just personal choice. And in verse 8 of chapter 3, John says it a different way. He says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So in other words, he says, sin is the life of hell. 
And when Jesus is bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth, these things can't coexist. You can't be part of the kingdom of heaven and just live without static or without effort or without conflict the life of hell because these, one of these kingdoms is going to eradicate, it's going to displace the other. And so we can't downplay the importance of this. We can see the contrast between these ways of life more clearly in other passages where you know, the writers will get more specific. One of those is in Galatians chapter 5 which is on page 975 of the Blue Bibles. And so let's flip over there, uh, or scroll over there. Galatians 5, uh, page 975. I'm going to read verses 19 through 24 of Galatians 5. This is the Apostle Paul writing. He writes this, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. So this is a letter from the Apostle Paul, like I said, but he's saying the same thing, and he gets specific. He names names, as it were. He says, the works of the flesh are evident. Impurity, idolatry, which is taking a created thing, a thing in the world, and making it my ultimate, my highest goal, whether that be a little statue or whether that be comfort or wealth or approval, making that more important than God. Strife jealousy, envy. He says, I warn you as I warned you before, those who do such things, those who live that pattern will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says, those things don't come from the kingdom of heaven and they don't belong in it. The fruit of the spirit, by contrast, is love, joy, peace, patience, and the rest. And you can hear the oil and water contrast there that you can't be self-indulgent and self-controlled at the same time, you know, that you're one or the other. You can't be joyful and you know, cultivate strife or envy. You can't be at peace and be bitter. Those two things, they don't fit together. We can't be both at the same time. And uh, Paul is saying what John is saying in our passage, that's the kind of stuff that Jesus came to kill. He came to put an end to those things. And so we can't just pretend like they're no big deal or just keep living in them without issue. It's kind of like if someone develops a lifestyle cancer, like lung cancer from smoking. You know, their doctors are going to start the mission of killing the cancer to try to treat them. But the patient is also going to get some assignments of lifestyle changes to help the treatments work. And they're going to be faced with the choice of, it's, I've been living a certain way. I've been living a certain kind of self-indulgent freedom. Am I willing to change that so that I can see this cancer battled and hopefully eradicated from my life? Or am I going to just keep going down the path that I was going down, come what may? That's kind of the choice that, uh, these, that we're faced with when we come into the kingdom of heaven, that there are things about our past life, there are things about our present life, uh, as we're going to see, we're all honest with ourselves, that are part of like a spiritual cancer. Jesus 
one of the things that he's doing is on a mission to see that eradicated from our life. But he challenges us and he asks us, is that what you want? Is that what you really want? Do you want to see that gone from your life? And are you willing to start working to see it gone? And what John is saying is that people who really get Jesus, who really get the goodness of his grace and really become part of his family, we're, we're at least going to start the fight rather than say, well, you don't have to fight. It doesn't matter if you do those things. They're no big deal. One Christian writer said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. I think it's a really stark but true way to see this contrast. This is the life of hell. And that's where it ends. And so that's the warning that John has, the warning against downplaying sin. It's the life of hell. It's going to be eradicated one day, and it can't define who we are. But his message isn't just negative of like things to avoid or things to feel bad about. John has a positive pattern of life that he commends in its place. He gives us a vision of what to do. And so let's flip back to our passage and look at chapter 2, starting in verse 3. 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 3, John writes this, By this we've come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And so the first part of John's message we looked at was a warning. This is where John commends a walk, where he gives a positive example or a positive vision for how Christians are called to live. Specifically, he says that those who trust in Jesus and those who abide in him, if we're connected to his life, we're going to walk like he did. We're going to grow into a pattern of life that reflects his. He says in verse 3, by this we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. That if we know the God of the universe made flesh and we understand who he is, then his voice is going to be louder to us than even our own desires. Then more than I listen to myself, I'm going to be listening to him. In verse 5, he says, whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. That if, to go back to our analogy at the beginning, Victor Wimbanyama loves being an NBA player and a San Antonio Spur. He's going to orient his life around that love. It's going to change who he is and how he behaves. In the same way, if we love the kingdom of God and we love the God who has saved us, then we are going to live into his pattern of life, and we're going to take that on as a joy, even when it's a challenge and a struggle for us. And then again in verses 5 and 6, by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So John says, if we believe that Jesus is the fully divine, fully human savior of the entire world, who is the only reason why we are saved, rescued from ourselves, and brought into fellowship and relationship with God, if we believe that he is the source by which we are adopted and we become God's children, then we get to abide in him. We have the privilege of abiding in him and being part of his kingdom. And so we are going to rest in his life. We are going to accept his pattern of life, that that's going to be something that we look to take on with joy. Because how could we not? How could we not start following him and trying to live like him and live with him if the grace we've received is so wonderful? 
and is so good. Getting Jesus' grace is going to lead to walking like he did. It's going to lead to keeping his word, to imitating him, to practice, which is language that's used in chapter 3, and we'll come to in a second, his way of life. Now, one thing that's interesting to see here, and I think one way that we're, we can even feel kind of uncomfortable about this within the church in kind of our present-day situation, is that John presents this truth of Jesus' people that they will live like him, uh, both as a command and as a promise. So in chapter 2, we see kind of the command side of it, that if God's grace really gets you, it will change how you live. And, you know, right now, kind of in the church, we, we're sort of in the middle of, maybe toward the end of, uh, a movement called the gospel-centered movement, or the gospel recovery movement. We've said, we're trying to, cor- to present the gospel as it really is, the good news of God's grace, and we're trying to avoid uh, what's sometimes called moralism, which is the idea of you act a certain way, you impress God, and then God blesses you with a relationship with him. And so there's been a reaction to that uh, in a way that's emphasized the fact that God's grace comes first, and it does. I think, as we're going to see, John affirms that reality too. But what that sometimes led to in practice is a, a discomfort even for Christians to then turn and say, but God gives us a way of living that is a command, that is a pattern that we have to take up, that we have to follow, because that feels like it's kind of going back, you know, away from grace to something else. And that's not the case, but John does say this is a command. This is a way that we have to live. But flip to chapter 3 again, and let's look at verse 9. John says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So John says there's a promise here, not just a command. It's not that God saves us by grace and then lays this burden on our back and says, all right, now go uh, make me proud. Go earn this thing retroactively by how you live. I'll see you at the end. What John is saying here is that if we are born of God, That means when we become Christians, we are joined to Christ by faith, that we become part of his family, that his spirit comes to live in our hearts. When that happens, it's like a seed has been planted in us by God that's being cultivated and grown by God, and it is going to grow by God's power to change us, to transform us, that it's inevitable. This kingdom is going to grow, um, not because of what we do, but because of what God is going to do. So some people here have, uh, you know, they've taken John, John's words to say that Christians become perfect or can become perfect in this life. Uh, I would love for that to be true. I would love to be able to say that's true. I haven't yet met a perfect person. So let me know if you found them. Um, I haven't yet. Uh, it, it seems like from the way that the Bible writers write, even John, uh, as we're going to see, um, we know that the Christian life is an ongoing fight. That as long as I have my sin nature with me, uh, and that's unchanged, it's I'm going to continue to struggle, you know, every day of my life, on into however long God gives me. And uh, that struggle means that sometimes we're going to fail. 
Um, if you have a retirement portfolio, you, you watch its value kind of go up and down, you know, over time. And so there are really exciting days and there are really depressing days. Um, but what you know is if you're following that, you don't look at the day-to-day, you look for the trends. You look for which way is it trending? Which way is it the line generally moving? Is it generally moving in a positive direction? And so what John is saying here with these things is that if we're in Christ, we're going to have our struggles every day. We're going to have our failures, and we're going to talk about that when they come. But the general trend of the life of someone who is living in Christ, who is abiding in him, is going to be the kingdom of God grows and the life of hell shrinks. It withers and dies away. That that's the way that we are going to move. And again, that's not just a command that we make happen. That's a promise that God is making happen. And we can trust that good news, not just of uh, God's grace that saves us, but God's grace that changes us. And we all know this. You know, you get to a place in Christianity, some people, this is why they become Christians in the first place, where you just get sick of yourself. You just get sick of your own sin. You have something in yourself. It could be an addiction. It could be just a, a pattern of relating to people. It could be like a bad relational habit or something else where you say, I am just, I'm so over myself on this. I want this gone. Um, there's a verse in um, the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, and we don't usually sing it, this verse, but it says, Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see his lovely face. The longer we live in Christ, the more that becomes something that moves us because we see our sin for what it is and we just become sick of it and we want it to be done. And again, there, there is a, a struggle, there is a fight on this side of things, but there is good news that God promises. He grows his kingdom in his people. He grows his righteousness in his people. And if you're here and there's something particular that you're struggling with and you don't have a community yet who's helping you struggle faithfully there, then please come talk to me because I would love to help you get a body of Christians who can help you along in that to see that because some incredible, amazing transformation can happen to people who are abiding and living faithfully in Christ. And so uh, this is really important because we can struggle on two fronts here. Uh, we can struggle on the front that needs a warning that John gave earlier of, it's like, I just want to live however I want, and I don't think it should be a big deal. And we, John has to say, it's a big deal. But then there are other people who, you're in the trenches with yourself. You're in the trenches with your own struggles, and you hear these things. You hear how John talks, and you hear, that is not me. That is not nearly as much me as I would like it to be. I feel like I fall into this way more than I should. Should I just give up? Some people get to that extreme. Should I just give up? Am I failing so much I'm going to fail myself out of Christ's grace that God's just going to give up on me? And what you need to hear is this last thing that John wants us to see. For someone who is sick of themselves and who is stuck in this struggle, it starts at the beginning of chapter 2. John writes this. He writes, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So what John is saying here is, just like he said already, I don't want you to sin. He's not writing to give the people license, 
But he says, when we do, when we're confronted with our own failure to walk as Jesus did, there's a way back. And for Christians, there's always a way back. And that's what we're going to close by looking at today. So John says the incredible thing about Jesus is that he's not just our lawgiver or commander, and he's not just our example who's walking way out before us and saying, I hope you can keep up. He's saying that Jesus is our advocate with the Father. Advocate uh, here in this text was a legal term. So in that day, if I get called to court, if I get called up before a judge and accused of something, an advocate is someone who's called up to stand beside me and help me make my defense. It's someone who's standing there with me, uh, pleading my case before this judge so that I can be uh, declared righteous, so that I can be uh, set free from what I've been accused of. Christianity teaches that Jesus' saving work didn't end when, even when he died and rose from the dead. That wasn't the end of what he did. That when he ascended into heaven, back into the throne room of the world, one of the things that he's doing right now is he is standing in front of the Father, holding his arms, in a sense, over his people, and saying, we see what they do. We know who they are. We know their sins and their failures, but they belong to me. I've covered them by what I've done. And so the holy God looks at Jesus and says, all right, because of what he's done, these people are covered. So Jesus is our advocate before the Father right now when we fail. He's literally, one guy, uh, writer said, it's like he's holding up his wounds, the signs of the sacrifice he made to say, I've paid for them. I've paid for that. They're in me not on their own. And so Jesus is our advocate before the Father. And the second way that he's our way back is that fancy word in verse 2, propitiation. Uh, You're probably wondering, am I going to hear what that word means? Because I'm not sure what it means. Um, It never really gets used in our language, so it's okay. I knew I had to explain it. Um, A propitiation is a payment that satisfies a cost. That's kind of the easiest way to summarize it. It's a payment that satisfies a cost. So, for example, if, um, you know, I stick around after the, the senior adult summer social that we have here after church, and then I get in my car to go home, and I just, you know, peel out without looking, and I smash up Nanette Langley's car. Uh, God forbid. Let's hope that doesn't happen. I hate to uh, do something to such a, sweet, uh, such a sweet person. But if I do that, then I have created a cost that someone has to pay. Either I have to pay that cost, that I'm going to fork out the money to get her car fixed and repaired back to where it was, or she's going to forgive me, which means she is going to cover that cost because her car is still smashed up. And so if she forgives me, she's saying, it's okay, I'm going to cover that cost so you don't have to, but someone has to cover it. So that's what a propitiation is. A propitiation is like the check that pays for the damage. It's a sacrifice that covers, a payment that covers the cost. And so for us, John is saying that our sins smash up way more than someone's car. We've damaged other people by our words, actions, and thoughts. We've damaged our own souls by what we've done. We've broken God's law, like uh, John said, and so we've offended the holiness of God. Our costs are way higher than our lives could cover. But Jesus has stepped in to cover the cost of that sin, our past, present, and future sin. 
He exchanged his life for ours, offering the payment that covers the cost for what we have done, all the ways we failed to live by God's righteousness. He accepted both the physical death of the crucifixion and the spiritual death of drinking down God's holy fury against sin. And so every cost that we've ever incurred has been paid for by the life of, one, a perfect human being, and two, God himself through what Jesus has done. Our closing song, which we're going to sing in just a minute, this is where we're finishing, is called Before the Throne of God Above. And it has this line. We are going to sing this line. Uh, It says, Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. So that double grace of Jesus as our payment uh, to die for us, Jesus as our advocate to stand in front of us, means that God looks at him and he pardons us. That he holds open the way back so that when we fail, we can turn back, we can repent, we can come back, we can stay in God's grace and get up and keep moving forward. We can continue the fight, the long walk of abiding in him, being filled and shaped by him, and waiting for the hope of resurrection and a new creation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us have a vision for your righteousness. Help us see that it is good news that there's a way you have shown us the way to live that transforms us and that changes us into your image. And I pray that, that would, we would be motivated and inspired by your grace to live faithfully, to pursue that righteousness. And when we fail, to uh, step into the way back that you hold open for us by your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.